following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, page number 836. We're using one of the Bibles in front of us there. So our kids are gone this week. They left uh, Monday go uh, stay at Grandma and Grandpa's for three weeks, which has been awesome, right? Parents, right? Awesome, on one hand. Uh, at the same time, it's also, uh, you miss your kids, right? So we're uh, sitting over here while we're singing, and we're singing, I stand in awe of you, and as we're singing that song, I'm remembering back to when Athena was three, four, right around there. We had taught him that song, but he didn't quite have it right, which is always cute, Right when kids don't quite get their songs right. And so he's singing the song, I stand, I stand in all of you, which I took to be a Trinitarian way of singing it, like he's standing in the Father and in the Son and in Spirit, and all of God. That's where Nathaniel was standing at that time. So uh, uh, just reminded me of him. Uh, just so if you weren't here last week, let me remind you kind of of the schedule that's coming up here. It's going to be a little different over the next few weeks. So this is my last Sunday up here for the next uh, three. We'll be here next week, but next Sunday is, and please, please come for this. I'm very excited about this. We're going to have Jared and Sharon share with us about their trip to Indonesia, their time with, with Jonathan and Sarah. And so we very much want to hear from them. Again, Jonathan has prepared some stuff for us as well, so we'll be able to hear all of that. So that's next Sunday. Uh, we'll be here for that. The following two weeks, we'll be gone on vacation. So Jordan's preaching one week, Chris is preaching another, and then we'll be back uh, second week of August, I think it is, back into Mark. So that's kind of the, the plan, just so you're on the same page with me. So here we are, Mark 1, last week here in this prologue. Let's read these la- first 13 verses one last time, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Verse 1 begins, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we have spent weeks now just opening up this prologue, trying to understand you, and we are here for one last week of this. This is Mark's attempt to show us who you are, to give us a behind-the-scenes look before the story even begins So that as we read what you say, as we watch what you do, as we see how you interact with the people around you, even though they may not know who you are yet, we do. You are Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And I pray, Father, that today as we bring this 
opening to a close, that you will drive home this right understanding of you thoroughly in our hearts and minds. Please help us to see you and understand who we are in you like we never have before, so that as we turn in August to, to your beginning, the beginning of your ministry, we see you preaching, we hear your, your words, we will recognize who you are and, and what you're calling us to. We want to be changed, and that's our desire. And so we ask your blessing on this time. Protect my words. May I only speak what is true. Protect the ears of every person in here. May they only hear what is true. Ultimately, you are what is important, not any of us. And so we want to be changed by you. We ask your blessing on this time in your name. Amen. So a couple months ago or so, Jordan and I were having a discussion about what we should title this series. Now, you probably, I, I would ask, but I don't want to be embarrassed. You would, may, many of you may not know that we actually give titles to the entire series so that when you go on the website, you can click on the, the series name and find all the sermons that are attached to that particular title. And so normally Jordan does this himself. He comes up with everything on his own because he's the more creative one of the two of us. But uh, this time, for whatever reason, we were talking about it together. And so we're going back and forth on different uh, ideas. And in the end, we picked a title for the series that was actually playing off of the title of our previous series. Our previous series, Genesis, was Beginnings. That was what we called it. And so we decided to call this new series New Beginnings because it is. It's the beginning of a, a new story of God's creative work amongst humanity, things we talked about here just a few weeks ago. And so that has been the title ever since. But there was, a, there was another title that I had toyed with in my own mind that I can't remember now if I ever shared with Jordan or not. If I did, I know what he, how he responded. He probably just rolled his eyes and laughed at me and then ignored me and continued talking. Um, but if I didn't, that's what he would have done. I thought about calling Mark Mark, the gospel for people with ADHD. Now, you're probably thinking that the reason I was toying with that title was because of the length of the book, as if someone with ADHD wouldn't be able to sit still through a, a longer book like Matthew or Luke, but probably could, could manage Mark. But it actually had nothing to do with the length of this book at all. It has to do with a word that Mark just loves. He uses it more times than anyone else in the New Testament. I think he uses it 41 or 42 times out of about 50-some usages. It's his favorite word. You've already seen it once in the series so far. You're going to see it for a second time today. It's the word immediately. Immediately. It's the Greek word euthus. Not that that matters to you. But, but he's going to use this word a ton throughout the book. And just in chapter 1, you're there in chapter 1, right? Still, got your Bible open. Look in chapter 1, he's going to use this word 10 times here in this one chapter. In, in verse 10, he says that when he came up out of the water, Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 18, he's talking uh, to some of the disciples or people who will become disciples very soon. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, here's some more of them. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And immediately, verse 23, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Verse 28, and at once, that's the same word, immediately, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee 
Verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And then verse 42, whew, I'm tired. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Ten times. First chapter, this one word, euthus, immediately. It's almost as if he, he just can't sit still. It's like, you know, here's the thing, and here's the next thing. And one thing leads to this, and then another thing leads to that, and then this leads to that thing. And if you're bored here, just wait a second, because it's going to, you know, this is the kind of the feeling you get. And you're never going to be able to read Mark the same way now. I'm going to warn you. I, I, a, a professor of mine, I can't remember if it was college or seminary, first showed me this. And after he showed me this, I've never been able to read Mark normally ever again, because every time I see that word, it just stands out like a sore thumb, and you're like, oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one, another one, and another one. It, it, it's, that's why... I was jokingly calling this the gospel for people with ADHD because it just keeps moving just like this. But that's not Mark's purpose at all. Really what he's doing here is he's kind of using a sort of a, a little quirk that I think is unique to Mark. Every author and speaker has certain quirks, whether those quirks are bad habits like saying um a lot or they're legitimate uses, words you use, or ways you talk that help you communicate a point. Mark has a little quirk here, I think, with this word. He likes to use it to move his story along. You see, the word euthus here immediately can be used in one of two primary ways. It can be used, A, temporally, to show what happens next in time. So this happened, and then immediately next in time, this happened. If you look at verse 10, you see an example of that. Jesus is in the water, and he comes up out of the water, and immediately the heavens are torn open, and he sees uh, the Spirit descending, and he hears the voice. That He's using it temporally there to show you what happens next in time. But he doesn't always use it that way. Sometimes he uses the word rhetorically to simply show how one idea leads to another. Let me illustrate this for you with a little example here. Look at this sentence that I put up on the screen. Jamie and I went to the furniture store recently, and that led us to buy a new couch. This isn't true. We don't have a new couch, but we're going to use this as an example. Now, just based on how I've worded this here, can you tell the timing of events? Did we buy the couch the same day we went to the furniture store? Or did we wait maybe a week and buy it? Or did we wait several months and buy it? What, can you tell the timing in any way, shape, or form from this sentence? No, you can't. All you know from this sentence is that something about us going to the furniture store eventually leads us to buy a new couch. That the two ideas are connected. Well, in a similar way, that is how Mark is using this word. It's how it's used in Greek. Sometimes simply to show how one thing leads to another, Not so much to indicate timing, just to, to show a connection. And at the beginning of verses 12 and 13, which is our section for today, we read here that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And just prior to this, he's, he's in the Jordan, right? He's, he's down in the water, and he's come up out of the water, and immediately he sees the heavens torn open. He sees the Spirit ascending, he hears the voice, and now immediately the Spirit's pushing him out into the wilderness. Is that, is that the idea you're supposed to get? I, I don't think so. Mark, Mark's purpose here is not to show us time, but simply to show us that the coming of the Spirit on Jesus and the affirmation of God the Father on his Son is going to lead to something that is very important for us to understand. And that is that sentence 
that I've been using repeatedly now over the last several weeks. He's driving the last point of that sentence home. The sentence I've been using is that Jesus is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-bringing, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. And we've seen each of these components in this prologue. In, In the opening part of the prologue, you see how Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises of God coming to his people. There's a a coming Elijah, and he's preparing the way for the Lord, for this coming day of the Lord where God will have a completely different relationship with his his children. And so you meet John, and you see Jesus coming, and you realize, wait, wait, this is the guy. This is the guy who the Old Testament promised. This this is the coming day of the Lord. God's about about to begin his work. As such, he's also the one who brings the Spirit with him to mankind. If you weren't here last week and you don't understand why I changed the word Spirit anointed to Spirit bringing, you'll just have to wait until Jordan gets it online. You go back and listen to it then. But here you see him in his baptism, the Spirit descending on him, signifying that this is the one, the one who would come baptizing in the Spirit, the one who would fulfill Israel's hopes of all of God's people, all of God's people having a right relationship with him. And now, now related to all of that this week, we want to see how the coming of this anointed one who's bringing the spirit with him marks the beginning of our freedom from sin and death. And so what I want to do today is just to simply walk us through these final two verses of the prologue, verses 12 and 13, and then come back at the end and just make a few observations from what we've seen. So Mark writes this. Let's just read those two verses again together. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, let me begin by simply observing the obvious, that this is by far, by far, the shortest account of Jesus being tempted by Satan here in the desert. You look at all the Gospels, and this is the the shortest of them all, only two verses. And you, when you think about that, you might be tempted, no pun intended, but to, to think that perhaps that's because Mark isn't very interested in this story. As if maybe somehow he, he's just got a list in his head of certain important events that he needs to check off to match up with all the other guys. And as long as he checks those off as quickly as possible, he's, he's good. But, of course, that's not the case at all. It, partially that's not the case because Mark's purpose here isn't to give us an understanding of Jesus' early life, is it? That's not why he's writing this prologue. If he was writing this prologue to help us understand Jesus' early life, what event do you think he just might include that he did not include? Maybe his birth, considering everybody else includes it. Why does Mark leave the birth out? Because for him, the birth's not important really in understanding who Jesus is, not in the way that he wants us to understand it. And so whatever he's included here has been included not to check off a list of events that he thinks you need to know about, but it's been included so that you will understand the things about Jesus that he wants you to understand. Now, second, related to that, that means then that whatever events he does or does not communicate about those uh, early parts of Jesus' life, are also purposeful, helping focus our minds and our thoughts on the things Mark wants us to see. For example, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't give us any details of the temptation, does he? There's no uh, suggestion by Satan that, that Jesus turned stones into bread. 
There's no suggestion that he jump off the temple so that the angels will pick him up. And there's no request of Satan that Jesus will worship him in exchange for all the the kingdoms of the earth. We're given no information about the specific nature of these temptations at all. All he wants us to focus our attention on is the larger situation and what this shows us about Jesus. And so even though this is a very short account, it is very short because it is very focused. His point, I think, is fairly simple and straightforward. He wants us to see it. Before we see it, though, let me remind us of one other thing. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago in regards to Israel's expectations of who the Messiah would be and what he would do? You had to be here about three or four weeks ago now to talk about that. Three or four weeks ago, we were looking at what did Israel expect? What were they hoping for when the Messiah came? Well, they were hoping that, that he would be like Moses and deliver the nation of Israel from foreign bondage. They were hoping that he would be like David and establish his, his throne in Jerusalem. He was supposed to, to come along and just smash all the people who made Israel suffer. That he was supposed to rule with justice and restore the lost fortunes of the nation. He was supposed to take all the other nations of the earth and subdue them and make Israel the greatest nation on earth. The Jews had really high expectations about what the Messiah would do. They thought he was going to free them from Rome, rule the world, make Israel the greatest nation. And so if you were a person who was familiar with those expectations and had them yourself, where would you expect this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah to go first in his ministry? Would you expect him maybe to go to the cities of Judea to raise an army to lead them against the forces of Rome, perhaps? Would you expect him maybe to go to Rome itself to put Caesar, the the living embodiment of evil, into his proper place? Or would you expect him maybe to go to Jerusalem and announce his reign and establish his kingdom there and sit on David's throne? I mean, if the day of the Lord has really come, if the Messiah is really here, wouldn't you expect him to do one of those things? Probably, but I know this, you probably would not expect him to do what he does, to go into the wilderness, but clearly that's where he goes. In fact, the Spirit drives him there. It doesn't drive him to the cities of Judea or to Rome or to Jerusalem. It drives him to a desolate, barren place where he will be humanly speaking alone. And yet, I would like to argue this morning that Israel's expectations of the Messiah were right. They were right. They were just misapplied. Let me show you what I'm talking about. First, notice what he does. He, He does go to battle with the enemies of God's children. It's just not the armies of Rome that he's fighting. He's fighting sin and death. Mark tells us here that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and that he's with the wild animals. Everything that Mark tells us about this scene is intended to communicate the great danger that Jesus is in here. First, the wilderness is a place of death. It is barren. It's fruitless. There's no food or shelter. It's a wasteland, a desert. You you don't go to the wilderness to live. You go to the wilderness to die. And while Mark doesn't tell us this, both Matthew and Luke make a point of showing us that when Jesus is there, how much does he eat for those 40 days? Nothing. It's a desert. It's a wasteland. It's a place of death. Second, Mark points out that he is with the wild animals. He's the only gospel writer to do this. We talked about that in the introduction. 
Why does he emphasize this point and the others do not? Well, I think there's two reasons. One I'll share now, one I'll share near the end. But I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to up the ante on showing us the real danger that Jesus is in in this place. When Mark mentions wild animals here, he's not thinking of like, you know, does and kittens and bunnies, as if Jesus is frolicking in a a remade Garden of Eden with the animals. He's thinking mountain lions and jackals and things that kill you. This is not a, a, a Garden of Eden reborn that Jesus is walking into. In fact, it's just about the farthest thing from the Garden of Eden in one sense, as he is here now in a place that is barren and desolate. Death reigns, and there are dangers all about him. Third, and even more frightening, Satan himself is here trying to tempt Jesus to sin. And as I've already noted, Mark isn't interested in the specific content of these temptations. He merely wants us to see that Jesus is under the direct assault of Satan, that he's being tempted to sin. And how many times was Jesus tempted to sin, by the way? Pause. How many? At least three. There was the best answer. At least three. When Matthew and and Luke record for us these temptations of Jesus, they're not intending, I don't believe, to say this is it. This is all he had. The way Mark writes it, the entire 40 days are a time of temptation, but those three are singled out by those two gospel writers to show us certain things about Jesus there. But from the way you read this, the entire time is a time of temptation. And some people get to this point, and they want to question whether or not, you know, he's really being tempted here. I mean, after all, he's God, and God can't sin, so if if God can't sin, how is this a real temptation? Well, I would just point out to you it's a real temptation because it says here he's tempted. I don't need anything else. But if I did, I would just turn to Hebrews 4 and I'd say, you know, what does the writer of Hebrews say about it? He says that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he is tempted. That's clear. We can't deny that. But we also have to affirm that he is sinless. And so to answer the question, how, how does this all work, I think you have to understand a few things. One, that remember, Jesus is not just God. He is God-man. And there are things about the union of his, God, of his divinity and his humanity that, quite frankly, we don't fully understand. We never will on this side of eternity, I don't think. But there are pieces about that then that make him temptable as a man in that sense. Number two, we need to remember that Jesus' temptations, while similar to ours, are in fact different. Who, which of you have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread? Which of you have ever been tempted to give yourself to the angels in flight? Though I feel that way every time I get on an airplane personally. But um, Which of you have ever been tempted to, to worship Satan in exchange for all the kingdoms of the earth. The temptations we read about here, while similar to ours, are clearly different. These are the temptations suited specifically to the God-man, not just to any normal man. And number three, his response, whether he had sinned or not, that would be a whole other issue, but his response would have never changed the nature of the temptation itself. What I mean by that is, whether he sins or doesn't, whether he gives in to the temptation or doesn't, doesn't change the fact that it's a real temptation. It's a real offer to evil, a real, real enticement to sin that Satan is trying to, to offer him. This is a real attempt by Satan to get Jesus to sin, and yet what do we see? Jesus overcomes. And so here in this first scene, Jesus is facing the two greatest dangers to God's people 
And those dangers are not Caesar and the armies of Rome. The greatest dangers that are, are, are faced by mankind, by, by God's children, are sin and death. And in defeating both of them in this epic battle, we see he will be victorious in the end. He, he, he doesn't die. He, he deals an initial blow to death in this scene, nor does he give in to sin. Again, dealing an initial blow to sin. And so the Spirit has driven him immediately into a battle. Immediately into battle, though the final victory and the war is yet to come. This is the first down payment. Second, second, while he doesn't go to Rome to deal with the living embodiment of evil, right, Caesar? Here in the scene, we see him with the true epitome of evil, Satan himself, in hand-to-hand combat, one-on-one combat. And this is a pretty quick one, I think. Jesus here isn't tempted by just any spiritual being. Satan himself makes a rare appearance here in the Gospels, here in the Scriptures. If you think about it, and go back and look at this later on your own, Satan doesn't show up a lot. I mean, you hear him talked about, but it's not that common to see him actually appear in a scene and be active and to be doing things. And yet, here in this scene, we see him actively engaged in the story. This is one of those times. He has chosen to take the lead in the temptation of Jesus. In the Matthew and Luke accounts, we see what it is that Satan ultimately wants from Jesus. Ultimately, he wants Jesus to worship him. Ultimately, he wants to usurp God's place. But Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan. It's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And what does the devil do? He leaves. He leaves him, and the angels come and minister to him. The point here is simple. In the course of this battle, by defeating sin and death, Jesus puts Satan in his place and shows his authority over everything, including Satan himself. Third, by defeating the enemies of of sin and death, Jesus establishes himself as the perfect, righteous king of this world. He is the king. He, nothing can defeat him. Not Satan, not sin, not death, nothing. And this is the reality that Mark's larger point here is trying to make. When you see Jesus coming on the scene here in the next verse, what is it that he's proclaiming? What is it that he wants the people around him to know? Well, you see in verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He's coming now proclaiming the presence of God's kingdom on earth. I am the king, the kingdom is here, you need to repent and believe. It's not the kingdom they were expecting. Nor is it the kind of king they were expecting, but both the king and his kingdom have come. They thought their king would come in and and do battle royal with military forces. Instead, he came in and he did battle royal with spiritual forces. They thought their king would put this world's rulers in their places. Instead, he came and he put the true ruler of this world, Satan, in his place. And they thought that he would establish a political kingdom so as to bring them peace and victory Instead, he came in and brought a spiritual kingdom which offers true peace and victory. This is why I said to you at the beginning, their expectations weren't wrong. It's just that they had misapplied them. And what Mark is trying to show us here is that everything that they thought the Christ would do, everything they thought that the coming of the day of the Lord would bring, has in fact happened. It has, in fact, been fulfilled by this man, 
Jesus of Nazareth, just, just not like they had expected. He truly is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-bringing, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. Now, having come to a good understanding of this passage, let's come back and just talk about a couple of quick points here. First of all, let's talk about the issue of Satan's involvement in temptation. How many times have you said, or have you heard other people say, well, Satan was tempting me to do this or that? Um, if we were honest, we've heard it a lot. If we're really honest, we've probably said it a lot. Can, it's partially because I think we misunderstand who Satan is and how he plays into this issue of temptation. The reality for many of us is whether we know it or not, we've come to see two sides of, of, of a battle. We've come to see God as the, the good God on this side and Satan as the evil God on this side. Lowercase g, but evil God nonetheless. So we've got good God here, bad God here, and they're fighting, and we're somewhere in the middle. We're the battleground. You know what's wrong with that understanding? Satan's not a god. Not in any sense. He's a created being just like you and I. He's not omnipotent, meaning he doesn't have all power. He can't do anything he wants. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know all the, the deep thoughts of our mind and hearts, unless, of course, maybe we tell him, but he doesn't know those things. And he's not omnipresent, meaning he's only in one place at any one time. So the thought that somehow Satan is attacking each and every one of us in reality doesn't make any sense. We might be under demonic attack or there might be spiritual forces at work, but I really highly doubt that many of us have ever been under satanic attack or that Satan even knows our names. Why would he care about us? He has bigger fish to fry. We have this tendency to treat Satan as if he is somehow the evil God, but he is not. He has limited abilities and limited resources, and he has to use them as wisely as he can, just like us. And while it is true that he is a powerful being, he is not one that we should fear, nor is he the greatest danger we face as believers. We tend to want to focus our, our thinking about danger to the externals, like, well, the world is our greatest danger, Satan's our greatest danger. Can I just be very honest and pastoral with you? You are your greatest danger. The, the sin in your heart is by far the greatest danger, spiritual danger you face, by far. You are far more wicked than you know. The, the heart is more deceitful and desperately wicked than any of us can understand. And so while we take these external things seriously, while we recognize they are realities we face, I'm less worried about that and more worried about this. I'm less worried about trying to figure out how to outsmart Satan and more worried about how my, my sinful heart is outsmarting me. Our hearts are wicked enough apart from him to give us plenty to do, plenty to do in this fight that we call sanctification. So let's focus on the, wrong, on the right things. Second, let's talk about a proper application of this passage. Because here's what often happens when, when we hear this passage or we hear preaching on it or we read about it. People want to take the story of Jesus' temptation and to turn it into a moralistic lesson about how we overcome temptation. Okay, so when you're being tempted, step one, quote a Bible verse, right? Because in Matthew and Luke, that's what Jesus does. He quotes Bible verses. So step one, quote a Bible verse. Step two, tell, him, tell Satan to go away. And then step three, you're done, right? You've, you've had victory over temptation. Um, maybe it's just me. I've tried those steps, and that doesn't always work. This is not a manual 
for us to understand how to overcome temptation. As if somehow we can achieve victory over sin through the the keeping of a list, through the checking off of boxes in a way that will somehow give us some victory that we think we can earn or work up ourselves. That's, That's not the case at all. This is not a moralistic story about dealing with temptation. This is a presentation of Jesus as the conquering king who made victory possible in the first place. It is, if you can think of the gospel story as having bookends, there is a sense in which this is the first of two bookends. This is the first time you see Jesus doing battle with sin and death, and he wins. But there's another victory coming. A greater victory, a final victory, that destroys the power of sin and death forevermore. This is the down payment that I mentioned earlier. And the victory that we have, our ability to even have victory, is not found in our own power. It's found in the victory that Jesus himself earned. And so when we're tempted to sin, and we overcome, we want to pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, good for us. We quoted the right Bible verses this time. And we, and we said, uh, we told Satan to flee in the right way, or that thing to flee in the right way, and therefore we we became more like Jesus. Good for us, right? Go to your deep, proud voice then. No. Every time you and I have victory over sin, it's because Jesus has already won the victory. There's no victory apart from his. And you know what? Even when we fail, even when we are faced with a temptation and we give in and we sin, even then, we still have victory. How can Paul tell us in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? How how can he say to us that we have nothing more to fear? No more wrath, no more anger, that everything that, that would have been rightly ours because of our failure is gone and paid for. How? Well, it's because of the victory earned for us by Jesus. The victory is not ours. The success isn't ours. And even in our failures, we, we see that Christ is all. He's all we have, all we'll ever have. Uh, one of the things I love about this story is the imagery here. You, you see it. I talked about it last week. I want to bring it up again today. You see in this story Jesus as the second Adam. It's not an exact story, but think about it. You have a perfect, sinless man. At the beginning of God's recreation, he's alone. He's with the animals. He's being tempted by Satan with food. You've got everything, almost every detail of the creation story. And yet, where Adam failed and he brings sin and death to the world, Jesus succeeds and he conquers both. In a similar way, think about Jesus now as the true Israel. Why is he in the wilderness for 40 days? being tempted, being in danger, asked to disobey God. Well, it it sure reminds me of Israel, God's people, in the wilderness for 40 years, in danger and tempted to disobey. And again, again, where God's people fail, Jesus succeeds. And so in this story, we learn that man never, ever, ever pleases God on his own. And yet we are given the one who pleases God perfectly. 
sinlessly forevermore. Who can save us? What, what hope do we have in this fight against sin and death? We have no hope. We have no future. We have no even dream of salvation apart from this promise-fulfilling, spirit-bringing, sin and death-defeating Son of God. This is the one we're going to learn about. This is the one we're going to walk with through the dusty streets of Judea. This is the one who we're going to hear from the hillside teaching. It's the one who can bring the victory that we've been hoping for. He brings it to us in the end. He brings it to us now. And all our hope is in him. Would you bow your head just for a moment? I just want you to bow your heads for a moment. I want you to think about that and meditate on this idea that it is Jesus alone who brings victory. Jesus alone. Because you are struggling with temptations and sins that would seek to destroy you. Where is your hope in those things this morning? Is it in yourself? Or is it in the one who can bring final victory and present victory? Think about your future What hope do you have when you stand before God? Is it your own righteousness? I'm telling you, you have none. Your only hope is in the victory won by Jesus over sin and death. If you are here today and you're struggling with sin, you're a believer, but you're struggling with sin, stop trying to fight the battle on your own. Give yourself to Jesus. Ask that the victory he has won be experienced in your life. Only by his grace will you ever have victory, will we ever see that victory. And if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, then it is time for you to realize that you have no hope apart from him and you need to come to this one who offers true hope for all. Jesus, it is very clear now to us why Mark has chosen to tell these specific stories in this specific way. He is laying out a case that you're more than just a, a fulfillment of Old Testament promises, that, though that alone would be amazing. And you're also more than just the one who brings the Spirit, a, a concept that sometimes feels confusing and yet is exciting. But as good as those things are, you are the one who's doing all of this so that you can free us from sin and death, our enemies, our foes, the things that were going to destroy us now and damn us for all eternity. And so we come now and we simply bow before you, recognizing that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And apart from you, we have no hope. Apart from you, there is no victory. We need you. We need to see you and understand you, and we want to live our lives for you. And so as we end this prologue and we begin to think ahead to to walking those roads and hearing you speak and and seeing the miracles and all the things that you're going to do. Help us not to simply become enamored with your activities, but to remember that your ultimate purpose in coming is to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to bring the gospel to bear on mankind. And we, as your children, get to see it, to know it, and to love you and have a relationship with you through it. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to live in the power of the Spirit every day, we ask in your name. Amen.